Kia ora and welcome to RNZ's Insight Programme. I'm Philippa Tolley. This week, the looming water allocation crisis in central Otago. All around New Zealand, the heat is on to clean up lakes and rivers and fix water quality. But in the driest region in the country, central Otago, farmers and orchardists are now facing an even greater challenge to their livelihoods, cuts to their irrigation water to save fish and stop the streams drying up. The Regional Council has four years left to overhaul the water permit system created in the gold rush days. And alarm is growing. Farmers might be left high and dry. For a central Otago orchard, water is everything. How does it work? So it comes down from the hill, does it? It comes through that tunnel in the gorge below Chattuck Creek, around the main rush, then it comes down this rush, round to here, fills these, and then this ends up back in the Manihiki River. This is leaning rock cherries on the fringes of the central Otago town of Alexandra. Under the trees on his 40-hectare orchard, the manager, Pete Benny, is showing me the water system. I've got several systems. I've got overhead sprinklers, I've got under-tree sprinklers, and I've got drip line. So it's a very efficient use of water. None of it's wasted. It's all very direct to what we're doing. Straight to yeah. the trees? Yeah. The orchard's one of the region's middle-sized exporters, employing 200 people in the picking season and producing about 750 tonnes of stone fruit a year. At the moment, 300 tonne of cherries, 250 tonne of peaches and nectarines, and about 200 tonnes of apples. Where does it go? Over to Taiwan, Thailand, Hong Kong, China, Indonesia. The apricots go to Australia, all those other things. The cherries go to those other countries. And the peaches and nectarines are all sold um, in New Zealand. And what sort of value, uh, you know, are you making for New Zealand? Uh, that's turning over $4 million at the moment. But Pete Benny's a worried man because the water on which this whole operation's based is up for a review by the Otago Regional Council. Deals have already been signed for a major expansion involving a third more land and the water rights that come with it. But Mr Benny says it's all in jeopardy. Potentially we're going to be doubling that in another five years, but... That'll all depend whether we've got water or not, right? It'll create more jobs. It'll just be good for, for the whole community, really. If they turn that tap off, there'll be no jobs for nobody. Central Otago is at a crossroads. Decisions made in 1991 when the Resource Management Act was created have sprung a 30-year trap in which the irrigation rights for most of the district all expire on October the 1st, 2021. Within four and a half years, more than 400 so-called deemed permits, which were forged in Central Otago's gold rush days, have to be renegotiated into modern water permits, for the first time with modern environmental considerations. Fish and Game Otago says farmers need to recognise the world has changed and streams can no longer be left to dry up each summer. And that's the whole point of the 1991 law change People have been taking water uh, using uh, legal mechanisms um, developed 100 years ago without regard for the environment. And the RMA has strong environmental um, provisions, uh, which means they do have to um, expect to relinquish water for the environment. But this challenge to century-old irrigation practices could come at a major cost. 
Central Otago's Mayor Tim Cadogan says the permits are now the biggest issue facing the district. You've definitely got environmental considerations to take into account, absolutely. But on the other hand, our region relies on the farmer, on the wine grower, on the tourist operator and on the fruit grower. And if that balance is out of whack, I'm really concerned for our region's economy. I'm Ian Telfer and today I'm taking insight on the road to investigate whether the modernisation of central Otago's water will deliver better rivers and irrigation or descend into a bitter fight for access. Hello! Even high up on the Carrick Range above Bannockburn, Edgar Parcell is a busy man. Good, yourself. For decades, he's been the main force behind the historic Carrick Water Race, a 26-kilometre-long canal cut into the side of the mountains, which carries vital water to the farms and vineyards below. We're driving high up into the Carrick Range to see the race's source. Well, the right was taken out in 1863 or 64. 1867, they started on it, and they started at the end at Anthony Saddle. Edgar Parcell first saw this water race when he was 13, and after 60 years off and on of maintaining it, he's got plenty of stories. And we get worms up here that are as big as your little finger and about six inches long. The water in this alpine environment is very clean, and that's why we get the worms will dig through, because there's not much dirt in the bank of the race, they dig through it and create a hole. And then we see it in all its glory, a shining snake of water shimmying its way among the scree and snow tussock. It's amazing to think it was all cut with picks and shovels, helped by horsepower. So, the vision of this though, was this originally used for sluicing? Yep, gold mining. That's what it was put in for. And then you see in the 40s, it changed to irrigation. The um, settlers of Annetburn took it over and, and then it, it solely changed the irrigation. How many people then, how many farms or irrigators coming off yours? 23. We've got 23 shareholders. And what are they doing with it? 80% of it's probably agriculture. Um, there's three vineyards and there's probably five or six orchards. So, yeah, at the Bannockburn end. So it's, it's, a, it's the only water source. And some of the regional council staff say, oh, get the water from somewhere else. But it's not feasible to pump it from the, the Quarra Arm, which is full of silt anyway. You know, you're looking at big expense, power costs, you know, it might be a more reliable source, but it's too far away. We're better to keep this running. It's run for 150 years. Back at Leaning Rock Cherries, they're thinking about survival too. One of the company's directors, Owen Shearer, was born and bred in the Manuherakia Valley. He says the river's been well managed for 100 years, but suddenly everything's being turned upside down. This is why there's so much buzz going on at the moment, because nobody's got any certainty about what's happening. What's the fear that, that there might be a, what, a serious cut? Well, any, any reduction's a fear. We've, we've based our whole operation um, with Leaning Rock Orchards on the amount of flow we've got now. If that's cut back, we're, we're in dire straits. Owen's partner says it's like the regional council's got horse blinkers on and can't see what will happen. I'm Cathy Stanton, um, also been here for 
30 years in the valley. Um, we've been, uh, you know, part of the uh, orchard that's next door for many of those years. Um, I've grown peonies. We have a lifestyle block here with sheep, and um, without water, this whole valley will die. Um, and we're really super concerned that um, the ORC is not having the foresight to to look ahead for another 100 years like the old-timers did um, in the past. So I think we've uh, got a huge fight on our hands to keep the um, irrigation quota the way it is. The roots of Otago's modern-day problem lie in its rich traditions and history. Unlike the rest of the country, water rights here were first granted for mining in the 1860s. And even when they were later granted for farming, they were agreed in mining courts under rules laid down in the gold rush. The rights were renewable forever and certainly took no account of factors like the ecology of the streams. The Regional Council knows the permit process is getting thorny and it's now swung into action to try to get the irrigators moving. Two weeks ago it ran a full day forum for about 140 water users in Alexandra. Um, can I send a very warm welcome to you all? Fantastic turnout. Uh, it's an important issue. We all understand the, uh, the challenges around water and the time frames that we're all facing, but uh, it's good... The Council's Director of Policy and Resource Planning, Fraser McRae, says the meeting was to focus farmers on the rapidly arriving deadline. Mr McRae told irrigators the rights they held from the gold mining days are coming to an end. The message is reminding them that while these were issued in perpetuity by the Warden's Court back in 1880 sort of thing, uh, and we're perpetual. The Resource Management Act in 1991 gave them a 30-year life, and that's 2021, and that's not very far away. And if you want to continue to take water after that, which I suspect most of the farmers will want to do, they will need to get a resource consent issued under the Resource Management Act to replace that. And this is about engaging with those farmers that are involved, and anybody else who's got one of these rights, to get them to start down that road. Certainly some of them are already on that road, but a lot of them are still hedging their bets and holding back. And we're saying, get in sooner rather than later. The council's trying not to scare the horses, but it's walking a fine line between the pressure on it from the government, the public and environmental groups, and reaction from farmers. Since the RMA came in 1991, a lot has changed. Problems with declining water quality have burnt themselves into the public consciousness and the councils had to start a major program called Plan Change 6A to improve the situation. That's due to be in place by 2020. As recently as 2014, the government issued the first national policy statement on freshwater management and as Fraser McRae explains, that's meant the councils had to set new limits on irrigation. The Warden's Court was issuing water so that you could fill your dam overnight, so that you could sluice the next day. So it was issuing you a large amount of water uh, at your spot and the next guy and the next guy. And the consequence of that is that the rivers, from a paper allocation point of view, are grossly over-allocated. And so with the National Policy Statement on Freshwater Management that's come along, uh, it requires us to not continue to over-allocate. We are now in a position where the consent has to sort of reflect what's real in the terms of taking water. At the moment, what's on paper that theoretically you could take and what you can really get out of the river are very different. The river just doesn't have that much water in it. Suddenly, what was difficult has become, in one mayor's words, as complex as a Russian novel. There's a crunch coming. Four years, 
There's four irrigation seasons. That sharpens the mind. But equally, it is about trying to make sure that people who are wanting water and are getting it now can continue to get water into the future. Are these complex deals? They're not really complex deals. They are emotional. They're very stressful because essentially it is about trying to ensure that there isn't a revolution, that there is a recognition of the amount of water that's being taken, but it's going to become tempered with leaving water in the river for the in-stream values as well. At the forum there were a lot of questions and quite a bit of confusion. Some farmers accused the council of giving mixed messages about whether or not their water allocations would be cut and by how much. And Alexandra Water Management Consultant Sue Scott says a lot of farmers are only just waking up to the problem. I sort of saw today more as an introduction than a, than a solution because there's an awful lot of unknowns out there in the community and today we heard all those differences of understanding and I think that the Regional Council's got a lot more work to do but I think they've also got to somehow get out into the community and get that information spreading out because at the moment I think they just feel like they're in a big jumble. However, one group of farmers has already shown it's possible to find a way through. To inspire the reticent, the regional councils made a video about the Salburn Water Users Group, the first to get through the deemed permits process successfully. We wouldn't have been able to do this development behind me, which transformed 200 hectares of just scab weed, uh, a bit of briar and a few old tussocks into top producing country. Now, if it wasn't for the certainty of the water that we are now receiving. In the video, Manyatoto farmer Gavin Herlihy emphasises the need to engage early with the three so-called statutory organisations that must be consulted. The Department of Conservation, Fish and Game and the Naitahu organisation, KTKO. But standing looking over his newly intensified dairy farm, Mr Herlihy tells me no one should think it was simple. It took seven years of very hard work to get where we are. We're a position that both the landowners and the previous users of the salmon water and Fish and Game and DOC and KDKO representing the local iwi were happy with. So no, that uh, was a, a long drawn out process but one that was built on, on negotiation, building a trust between the parties uh, and uh, having uh, a modicum of uh, a lot of patience. So you're really the first through this sort of modern-day deemed permits process. Is that going to be like that for other people, do you think? Yes, it will. Um, I'm concerned that the, uh, the time scale is only four years now till 2021. There's not a show in hell of getting all of those. Uh, uh, and there are countless creeks like the Pigburn and the Sarburn right throughout central Otago uh, that have got to be addressed. Uh, my concern is that there is not enough resources within Fish and Game, within Dock, or even KDKO. Main thing about electric fishing, Ian, keep your hands out of the water, please. To better understand the kinds of challenges involved, I've driven out to Lake Onslow, about 30 minutes up a gravel road from the Teviot Valley. On a cold and windswept day, Department of Conservation senior ranger Daniel Jack is standing in a mountain stream searching for the country's rarest native fish. Some pickings, huh? Oh, good. I'm actually uh, fairly chuffed, to be honest. 
There you go. And we've got one. Uh, yeah, we've got three um, Teviot Galaxis in the bucket here today. Um, there's a juvenile here. It's about 35 to 40 mils long. It's probably this year's young. Um, and these other two here, or maybe this guy here is probably a, a couple of years old. And um, this larger one here is probably about 75, 80. Could be as old as um, three years old. Teviot Galaxis. Uh, probably Otago, well, probably New Zealand's most endangered Galaxis. Um, How rare? Uh, well, seven known populations. Um, we visited one yesterday and we didn't find any, so that could be six known populations. Um, and how we, many of them are, are there out there? Any idea? Uh, well, we know that in this particular creek, um, based on our monitoring data of 10 years, that there's, there's around about an estimation of... 300 adults. The Teviot flathead is the most endangered of this type of native fish, but it seems most, if not all, the native galaxids are struggling under the impact of land and climate change and agriculture. Knowledge is still sketchy, but it's believed 10 species are found only in Otago and four are confined to a single catchment, often just a few kilometres of upland streams. Irrigators going for a new water permit will have to take the protection of these fish into account. Mr Jack says there's been a remarkable increase in farmers' knowledge about galaxids in the last five years. And he says Doc's interests do overlap with other groups like Fish and Game, though he admits there will be some tensions. Basically, both trout and galaxis need water to survive in. It's that simple. Unfortunately, larger fish eat smaller fish. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's, that's where our values overlap quite strongly. Fish and Game's Otago Council's already signalled it's prepared to play hardball in order to preserve fish habitats. Its chief executive, Neil Watson, says neither it nor the public will stand for rivers drying up every summer anymore. The resources we manage, sports, fish and game birds, rely entirely on ecosystem health, so um, healthy rivers, uh, lakes and wetlands, and this primarily relates to rivers and streams of central Otago, um, many of which are currently completely diverted during high summer, uh, stranding fish and leaving dry riverbeds. You tell me a bit more about that. How bad is the situation right now? Well, it, it, it's extreme. Uh, um, the common landscape feature in central Otago are dry streams and rivers um, or heavily depleted uh, waterways so that you see meagre flows and not much life in, in rivers and streams. And, and that really does need to change. But is that because of farmers and irrigators, or is it because they just dry up? Uh, no, it's not because they just dry up. There's a, there's a common uh, um, myth that these uh, rivers and streams go dry naturally. Very few do. It's because all the water is taken uh, during summer low flow periods. Farmers fear fish and game's bottom lines will mean major cuts to their water allocations. But Neil Watson denies that. No, I don't think so at all. In fact, uh, irrigators have got alternatives. Uh, they can uh, look at uh, on-farm storage, and many of them are doing that. Uh, they can look at uh, larger irrigation schemes, such as the Falls Dam uh, enhancement scheme that's being looked at uh, at the present time. Um, they can move to more efficient irrigation uh, 
regimes and um, uh, and uh, solve the problem that way, or they can even look at reduced uh, reduced area for irrigation, um, which is probably the least attractive to them. But they've got all those options to uh, enable them to relinquish some water for um, for the environment. The third statutory group which must be consulted is the local iwi Naitahu. The iwi's organisation KTKO says while it's a party to the deemed permit process, it's not ready to talk about the approach it'll be taking. But whatever the approach, the requirements are a red rag to a former farmer, regional councillor and ACT MP, Jerry Eckhoff, who's been writing opinion pieces saying irrigators are being dangerously sidelined. It's a massive issue, but it's also a very political issue. It's an issue that has caused environmental lobbies to come out, and, uh, and I, I refer to organisations such as Fish and Game, to realise that this is an opportunity for them to get a hunk of water for their fishing activities. And, of course, that pits uh, against the, the use, the historical use, the cultural use, uh, and the social use of water that has been traditionally used by irrigators by, by small town New Zealand. And uh, that really is what the battle's about. Uh, it's not about uh, irrigators and it's not just about brown and rainbow trout. It's about the future of small town New Zealand. The battle over minimum flows for just one river, the Lindus near Wanaka, has taken more than seven years and is heading towards more hearings at the Environment Court. Mr Eckhoff says he fears others will be the same and that will ruin the process. Unfortunately, and uh, you know, I say this after having spent uh, nine years on the regional council, when this first came up, the council decided to take uh, or do the easy options for a start and left the difficult rivers, the ones like the Lindus, uh, the Cadrona, the Manihirakia, the Arrow, till last. Tactically, I think that was a very bad mistake because now, especially in this water-short area, and it has been extremely dry over the last few years in central Otago, the minimum flow setting can't be set back or set aside from the setting of, the settling, I should say, of these water rights, these water permits. The two go hand in glove, and the irrigators essentially are waiting to see what the councils are going to do and where they're going to set these minimum flow levels before they start agreeing to their water take levels. So I think the cart's before the horse to, to a very large degree. At the heart of those fears is the largest and most important catchment, the Manuherakia Valley. Gary Kelleher is a fifth-generation farmer in the valley and he plans to spend several million dollars to overhaul all the irrigation systems and put in pumps and more efficient sprinklers by 2020. He says the combination of new minimum flows, new permits and water quality rules is causing a massive amount of alarm and for some people in the valley, absolute panic. Right up until recent times, farmers have been happy to maybe dry up some paddocks, reduce down some flows, um, that sort of thing, and just you know catch back up again later in the season. Uh, the new rules around efficiency and efficient use and the, um, you know, the, the big investment that's needed in uh, irrigation infrastructure really kills the ability to do that. You've got to have that reliable flow to be able to raise the money to do all the work, and, and that's the battle here. But he says there's an even bigger shadow now. 
the threat to plans for an $80 million expansion of the Falls Dam, which has been the crux of the valley's water for 100 years. Mr Kelleher says the range of options for the minimum flow of the Manuherakia, which the regional councils floated as being between 1,250 and 2,500 litres per second, are almost all economically impossible. Mr Kelleher, who's trying to regain his seat on the regional council in a by-election in June, says if the council pushes too hard, there might be some major unintended consequences. He says the council could end up making it impossible for farmers to survive in lower-paying sectors like beef and deer, pushing them into converting to more lucrative and intensive dairying. In a way, I think the ORC, if they're going to go down this route of forcing a far higher flows in the river, far higher dam needed to provide it all, then um, they actually could be turning far more farms to dairy than what's needed. A Queenstown Lakes District Councillor, Ella Lawton, who's also standing in the by-election, says it might be time for the council to fess up that the process is in trouble. We need to make sure that the plan's right, um, that we've got the best possible science, that we're ORC are providing really good leadership um, and that they um, are being proactive and I'd suggest that part of that would be going and talking to central government about the issues that, we're, that ORC are having. Well, what should central government do? I think at least being transparent with them and saying that there's this issue is going to be a step in the right direction rather than saying, yeah, yeah, it's all fine, we've got it. But the regional council says it's confident the process, while fiendishly complex, has time to succeed. The council's resource manager, Marion Weaver, says it's put in extra staff to get the minimum flows all sorted within two years and to clear the decks for the deemed permits that will then need to be reviewed. Yeah, we have to. We've actually got no choice. Um, RMA says we're going to process these permits, so we will. Yep. And the outcome? Do you feel like it will be a step forward? Oh, yes. Oh, definitely. The mining privileges have had significant environmental effects on the waterways in this region and it's about restoring some of the natural character of some of these rivers. What will the public see? Hopefully they'll see water flowing under the bridge down to the next main stem or whatever it is. Yeah. So they might see a real tangible outcome actually. They should do. On the street in Alexandra, the Mayor Tim Cadogan defends the regional council, saying it seems to be doing a good job so far. But Mr Cadogan, who's also a lawyer, says right now the process could go either way. I hope it's a good thing that sorts out the long-term water problems. The answer will be when we get to 2021 and see where we're at, to see that the balance has been achieved between the kids who want to jump off the rock at the Manuherakia River just below the shaky bridge right here in Alexandra and still jump into a clean river that's deep enough for them to have a good swim around in summer. Um, and alongside that, the farmers and the fruit growers and the horticulturalists throughout the whole district, not just the Manuherakia area, are able to maintain their businesses at a price that is affordable. That's the balance. That's the trick. And worst case scenario is everyone sits back and nothing happens and there's a big squabble at the end. Yeah, yeah. Worst case scenario is that we wind up in the environment court and um, at huge expense to everybody involved, that clock keeps ticking. And that really troubles me, that the clock keeps ticking uh, through to 2021. Um, that that wouldn't be good. Or, or a result that leaves the environment desiccated or leaves the farmers and irrigators unable to maintain their businesses. Somewhere in between there is the middle ground, or the middle water, you might want to say, that, um, that will provide the solution to this community.
The struggle for a 21st century water system will have a major impact on this district's future. And time's running out to have the careful, open negotiations so crucial to making the future one everyone can look forward to. I'm Ian Telfer and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to get in touch or share your thoughts on the program, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at insight at radionz.co.nz or our Twitter handle is at InsightRNZ. Ian Telfer wrote and presented that program. It was produced by me, Philippa Tolley, with technical production by Phil Benj. Why not podcast other Insight programs? You can head to iTunes or your Android provider and subscribe, rate and even give us a review. Or you can visit the Insight webpage at radionz.co.nz. Thanks for listening.